The sermon text this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I know everybody wants to be me right now. But before I start, um, you know, in your bulletin you have this uh, note on fasting. We're continuing to practice fasting for the second Tuesday of every month. Uh, as you know, fasting is, is a long, uh, there's a long tradition of uh, this Christian discipline. Um, the reason we fast is to remind us that our ultimate satisfaction can only come from God. Uh, we live under the sun. We live in a world marked by futility and frustration and ultimately despair. And fasting reminds us that there's nothing in this world that will ultimately satisfy us except God. He has, for his own for his own purposes, but really for our grace, he has uh, taught us that, that we won't find full happiness here apart from him. And so toward that end, we're going to pray that we would um, find the things of this world to be less satisfying than God. That's our purpose in fasting. Uh, this week, though, or this month in particular, you know, we're in the midst of many different issues we're facing, this pandemic that we're still in the middle of. Millions have died over it worldwide. Uh, the isolation and the quarantine, even the curfew, has been uh, burdening many of us. Uh, we have the issue of um, the geopolitical situation, China, North Korea, Russia. They always seem to be looming in the distance, causing a degree of uncertainty and concern over our own national interests. Uh, we have on May 25 the death of George Floyd, uh, unjustly killed while in restraint of a police officer. Uh, this has just raised up and reminded us of the racial tensions in this nation. Uh, these are all reasons to grieve. We grieve. And so when we fast and pray, what we're doing is appealing to God for mercy. And lament is a language of Scripture given to us that when we don't know what to do, when we're overwhelmed and overrun with the things of this world, that we don't wring our hands and just moan indirectly, but we appeal to God for grace and mercy. Nehemiah did it, uh, Daniel did it, and, and we'll do it. Now, on the website and in your bulletin, you have some guidelines about what a lament is. Lament is simply crying out to God. God, look at our world. Look at our situation. Look at where we are. And it's a declaring of the complaint that we have. God, this is the trouble. And then it's appealing to God for deliverance and mercy. God, help us. Help our leaders. Help our nation. Help our people. And then it's this statement of trust. You know, like in Psalm 22, which is the beginning of a psalm of lament, he says, but you are the Holy One of Israel. It's a declaration of our faith in God. And so that's what a lament is. So we're going to practice that this Tuesday. And then even next Sunday, Levy will lead us in a lament. He'll model it for us. He'll come up, and during this time of corporate prayer, he will lament. It's a form of prayer. You see it in Psalm 6, 10, 13. Probably most of the Psalms are either individual or communal lament or have parts of them. And so that we can be a people, that we have the language given to us by the Spirit of God 
to cry out in our time of need. So I pray that you'll engage with us in that. Okay, so we have this text in front of us in Matthew 5, right? You see this sermon title, it's the beauty of submission. Some of you, this may seem like a contradiction in terms, a bit of an oxymoron, what do we do with this? Um, one author kind of said this, these sermons are kind of space makers. And that just simply means that next week there'll be more space because of the nature of the sermon. But I trust that you see the value in this and the value in terms of kind of we want to have godly and successful marriages. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the nature of the, really God's design for marriage. And uh, it's to be that the two become one. And last week, we looked at the role of the man in marriage, the husband. And we saw that he is to sacrifice himself, uh, to seek the sanctification of his wife, to love her with tender care. That this is the man's role, if you will, so as to facilitate this one flesh. Well, this week we'll look at the role of the wife. What instruction does Paul give to the wife? If the man is to lay down his life, or to attempt to, and to strive to, what ought the woman to do in the context of marriage? And I think you see in the text that there is a, a yieldedness, a voluntary yieldedness to the spiritual uh, leadership and the moral leadership of the man in the family. So, in other words, if the man is to display Christ to the world uh, by giving, laying down his rights and his life for the benefit of the woman, if that's a picture of Christ, then the woman responding rightly to the man is going to be a picture of the church as it ought to respond to Christ. And so you see, within the marital union, this picture of what God is doing to redeem his world between Christ and his church. Now, you know, whenever I've bought a power tool, it always comes with this warning label. And warning labels are important. You buy a set of knives, you buy a power tool. Warning, if you don't heed, if, you, if you're not careful with this thing, then you can really hurt yourself or hurt others. I kind of feel like this text ought to have a warning label. It, you know, it, it is culturally very dangerous. Culturally, or at least in the church even, it's very controversial. It needs some type of warning label. Why? Well, because it's easily mishandled. We're talking about things like submission and headship. These are incendiary terms. I mean, these are not fully understood, and they are flammable. They're explosive, depending upon who you speak with. They're easily misunderstood. I can possibly run the risk of being called a caveman, as I explain this to you. But not just are they misunderstood, they're also misapplied. You know, Ignorant and sinful men have used these texts to furnish a life of ease for themselves. They have used it in terms of claiming absolute obedience from a wife or absolute submission. It's been used to, it's been reduced to be relegated to, well, the woman ought to cook or sex on demand. And so I, I know that many of you, or some of you at least, have been hurt uh, by a misuse of these texts or perhaps authority. And so I, I would just ask, you to join with me. and Let's clear the slate if we can. I know that I can't undo all the hurts that you may have felt, but let's clear the slate and try to see what God's Word has to say on the nature of submission and headship. These are the two operative terms in the text. What does it mean uh, to submit? What does it mean to, to be the head of a family? Um, so let's start with submission. 
Um, you see right there in 522, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, let me give you the context here, right? In 518, we saw last week, uh, Paul calls us to be filled with the Spirit. That we as the church are to be filled with the Spirit. That we are to be growing in spiritual wisdom and discernment. And our lives are to be marked with greater spirituality. Uh, the fruit of that you're going to see in verse 21 of chapter 5, which is that we are called to submit to one another. Okay, so Paul's speaking about the church in general. There is to be an attitude of submission one to the other, male to female. Uh, there is to be a deferential attitude that we're to exercise to one another. This is why the staff and the elders uh, and the servants here are wearing masks. We want to be deferential. It's the attitude that we're to have to one another. There are people that have perhaps higher concern for health or they're higher risk. It's okay to defer. That's the nature of the church, that we act in deference one to the other. But what Paul does is he moves from the general population of the church and he moves now into marriage. And that's why he says there, uh, wives, submit to your own husbands. Uh, a wife doesn't submit to any man in the way that she submits to her husband. So, so he kind of specifies, he brings it down closer, says, wives, submit to your own husbands. But what does submit mean? Well, I, I would say the easiest word to consider submission is yield. You, you know, it's not, a, it's not a red light, it's not a green light. Red light, you stop. That's the rule. You just stop. There's, there's no reasons not, you just have to stop. Green, you get to go. But that yield is a giving way. It's a voluntary willingness to give way to the spiritual and the moral leadership of the husband. That yieldedness. It's really an it begins with really an attitude of the heart. There's an inclination. There's a, there's a disposition to give way. It, it, there's a readiness for the wife to give way to the spiritual and the moral leadership of the husband. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a technical explanation to it. So let me give you five statements that hopefully will clarify it, maybe a little bit more practical for you. I want to give a little texture to it. So these are five statements that hopefully will bring uh, greater clarity. So, so, and I'm going to do a not and it is. It's not this, it is this. So submission is not forced, but it's voluntarily offered. Submission is not forced, it's voluntarily offered. Uh, the text in no way encourages men to demand submission. Uh, the text in no way says man ought to force it or demand it or require it. doesn't say that. Paul's actually speaking to the wife. Uh, Paul's recognizing her value. Paul's recognizing that she is an equal to the man and that she has her own will. And so he's appealing to her. So he speaks to women. He says, women, submit. He's... He is not denying her freedom. He is calling her to exercise it in a way that would defer to the spiritual and moral leadership of the husband. So it's not forced. The, the wife is to voluntarily offer it. Okay, secondly, uh, submission is not a statement of value. It's rather a reflection of a divine order. In both testaments, the male and the female, they're equal. Right, right in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, he created them male and female. He created them. Equality between the man and the woman. You see the same thing in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul says there's neither a Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And in other words, when God looks at his creation, his human creation, we're, we are equal in value. 
So, so speaking about submission is not speaking about a difference in value, but rather a difference in ordering, the way the home is ordered. Listen, the word submission, the Greek word, actually the root word just means order. There's a certain order that God has put into his creation. You see it as the planets have an orderly rotation around the sun. You see it, children to parents. You see it, employees to employers. You see it in citizens to the government. You see it in church members to eldership. God has baked an order into his creation. Without order, there is at a minimum confusion. At a maximum, there is anarchy. And there's a, you know, life would hardly be fruitful in anarchy. And so what Paul's saying here is that within the home, there is this order. There is this divine order that reflects the actual Godhead. Let me explain what I mean by that. Marriages are to reflect the triune God. Why do I say that? Well, think about the relationship between Jesus and the Father. There is equality there. And yet, Jesus, there is functional subordination. That he submits himself to God. He takes on flesh. He comes to dwell among us. He lives to do the will of the Father. He even is willing to lay down his life for the Father. In the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Not only that, but even when he returns, it says he will consummate his kingdom. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, he says he's going to give it all to God. He'll forever be the Son. You see the picture in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. You see a functional subordinate, but you see equality. You see difference in order, but you see equality. Who would say that Jesus is lesser because he submitted to carry out the plan of the Father? We glory in his submission to the Father. There is something glorious and beautiful about submission. The same thing, that the head of the woman is the man. There is equality, but there is order. I think that's all he's saying here. So submission is not about value, it's about order, reflecting. Think about it. The marriage is to reflect the very nature of the triune God, the very Godhead, which makes sense because we're his image bearers. Bringing men and women together in the concept of marriage displays the very nature of God. So it's much more than just who gets their way. It's about there's this cosmic display going on in the way that we live as husband and wife. Okay, thirdly, Submission is not passive, it's active. There's an activity to submission. Submission isn't just silence or acquiescence or just enduring. Uh, there's an active. You see this in verse 33. If you scan down your text, you see Paul kind of sum up after speaking to the men. He says that the husbands are to love their wives as themselves and that the woman is to respect. There's a certain active respect. Now, that Greek word for respect is our word, what's well, phobos, and our word phobia, so, you know, fears. It, this in no way is saying that the woman should ever tremble in fear, never cower in fear before a husband, but there's that, that fear of respect, of position, that God has conferred upon the man the role to be the head. And, and that role has a responsibility. And the responsibility is that the man will stand before God for the family. He will bear a degree of responsibility. doesn't exonerate the woman entirely, but you see God go to Adam after the sin in the garden. That, 
that the sin is referred to as Adam's sin. There's a responsibility. And that Paul's saying that when the woman gets a hold of the responsibility to be born by the man, then she will respect the position, even if he's not fully respectable. Many men are not fully respectable, but they will stand before God. And that engenders a degree of, you take a step back and you take a breath. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his sermon, this was from a wedding sermon that he gave, he says, now when the husband is called the head of the wife and it goes on to say Christ is the head of the church, something of a divine splendor is reflected in our earthly relationships. And this reflection we should recognize and honor. The dignity that is here ascribed to the man lies not in capacities or qualities of his own, but in the office conferred upon him in marriage. The wife should see her husband clothed in this dignity. But for him, it is a supreme responsibility. As the head, it is he who is responsible for his wife, for their marriage and for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. He is its mainstay and comfort, master of the house who exhorts, punishes, helps, comforts, and will stand for it before God. That's sobering words, sobering words that ought to cause all men to kind of shift in their chairs. That's why he says respect. Uh, fourth, uh, submission is not about absolute obedience. It's about reverence to God. You see this when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Two things he's saying here, as to the Lord. First, he limits the type of submission. He limits it as to the Lord. In other words, a, a woman is never to submit to anything ungodly or unlawful. Anytime that a man seeks to lead in a direction that is contrary to the word of God or the ways of God, a woman just, I can't go there. There is no call for submission there. Uh, any sort of verbal or physical abuse, there is to be no submission before that at all. Paul says in Colossians, when he speaks to the wife, he says, as is fitting in the Lord. The, the leadership has to fit within the paradigm that God has set up. But not only is it limiting the nature of submission, it also gives direction to it. She submits as unto the Lord. In other words, uh, Paul is recognizing the value of the role that the women had, that their service to their husbands is actually service to God. It's an act of worship. Again, a, a lot of men and husbands will not be strong leaders. They will fail. They will not always act respectable. But the woman's submission is tethered to her trust that the sovereignty of God is even going to work through his flawed representative. That God, just like we do the government. The government's always been flawed. The government will always be flawed. But we, we respond because we know that God directs the heart of the king. And God's sovereign, even leading us into difficulty, will bring about not just his glory, but our happiness and our eternal joy. And, and then the fifth, the fifth component here is that uh, submission is not the whole of marriage. It's only a part. Submission and headship don't make up this whole gift that God has given to us in marriage. Marriage is much more complex. It's much more broad. God has designed for marriage to be a place of great glory and joy in the giving and the receiving of the gifts. And that the woman has gifts and talents and strengths. They need to be leveraged. They need to be encouraged. They need to be recognized. They need to be trusted in. They need to be sought out. Just as the weaknesses need to be protected and, act and uh, handled with patience. You know, as I think back over my marriage, as I confessed a couple weeks ago, 
you know, all of Christian life is a development. It's a growth. It's a progress in, in uh, joy and knowledge of God. And as I've come back to look over the 34 plus years Karen and I have been married, you know, I've just been overwhelmed by the consideration of, of the gifts that she has in terms of just emotional intelligence. She has insight that I don't have. She has um, a capacity to suffer well. Uh, she has a willingness to sacrifice uh, very, very well without ever causing you to know she's sacrificing for you. Uh, she allows her schedule to be twisted into pretzels as as my schedule is often twisted into pretzels and just works along with it to facilitate the service that we, the staff, are trying to render to the church. And th those things, to me, our marriage would be uh, greatly the lesser without those things. I want to recognize those. I want to encourage those. I want to see those as context of our marriage, not just the issues of headship and submission. So it's, it's much bigger than that. I encourage you men to, to speak to these gifts, to lean on the gifts that the divine creator has given to your wife for the betterment of your marriage. It, your marriage is much more complex. So, so ladies, this is, um, this is a tall order. Wives, this is really can be quite challenging depending upon where your husband is in terms of leadership and care and sanctifying and sacrificing. This is very hard. You need grace. You need to appeal to God for mercy to do this well. If, if the Spirit of God has brought a measure of conviction as you're hearing me and you, uh, you begin to look back and you think about all the times that you've been critical or sharp, or perhaps you haven't given him room to grow and fail as a leader. No one comes out with an A-plus in leadership skills. We're all at various levels learning, trying to grow. Perhaps you've been critical, you've been harsh, haven't given him room to grow, or you've been demanding, or perhaps you've been manipulative, that you're going to get what you want, but you're going to just do it in alternative ways. This might be a point of repentance for you, to ask forgiveness, both from God and your husband. Could you ask him, even today, would you ask him, how do you sense my yieldedness to your leadership? How do you see my support of you? in the role that you have in this family. You might ask him, do I encourage you enough? Do I speak to the things that you do? And do I give good word to it? Is there room for you to grow? Do you fear failing before me? Those are questions that might give you insight as to how he is perceiving. Remember, the way you look at your role as a wife and the way that he looks at your role as a wife probably won't be the same. And that might bridge some of the distance. Now, some of you are saying, well, that works when your marriage is at that level. You can talk and everything, but that's not my marriage. You know, my husband's uh, super passive. And, and I understand that is a struggle. I mean, passivity is a struggle. A lot of men either don't have strong leadership gifts or perhaps they're afraid to use them. And, and let me just encourage you to pray for his leadership, pray for his wisdom, pray for his courage, pray for his willingness to do it. I know many of you women are very intelligent and you're very capable and it's probably very difficult. You just want to grab the reins and do it yourself. And may I encourage you to avoid that to the degree that you can. Some of you may have marriages where the passivity is so great that things would never get done. 
the house would fall apart. Life would stop working well. I understand how you may need to be involved, but, but try to do it with the disposition of, of appealing, saying, can you please join with me in this? Things do have to get done. But appeal with the disposition of humility and grace. Others of you may say, well, my husband is a failed leader. He fails over and over, and I, I can't trust his leadership. Again, we turn to God for grace in this. Try to avoid the criticism of past failures. Sometimes it's as if there's a list in your mind. You did this in 88, 92, and 96. Avoid criticism over past failures. Avoid criticizing him to others. It just destroys any future attempt at leadership. You know, I have failed many times in the marriage, in my marriage with Carol, I don't remember one time she said, I told you so. She, I don't remember one time she did it. She suffered from, this, from my failures, but I never remember her bringing it up and whipping me with it. And you know what it's done for me is it's encouraged me to be a stronger servant leader. I recognize it. I'm not perfect and I, I, I fail, uh, but, it, but it encourages me forward. Now, some of you may say, well, my husband's not even a believer. What do I do then? Well, Scripture does speak to this. I mean, in 1 Peter, he says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, that's the unbeliever, or perhaps they're behaving as such. Let him be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. He, he goes on and says, but it should be that inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's why the beauty of submission. It is of great worth in God's sight. You have no idea the reward that will come to you. Now, this is the long game, ladies. This is a hard thing. I've known a lot of people for a lot of years that have tried to work this out, and it has not borne the fruit that they would have desired earlier. It's a long game. It, patience and grace is needed. You, you need good Christian ladies around praying with you, praying for the salvation of your husband, asking God for grace. This is where the church, I think, is so essential to find like-minded friends that are looking at the eschaton at the final day and saying, I'm going to live for that. I'm not going to live for this. And then some of you may bring up, which is very, very difficult, that your husbands are harsh. They're harsh with you. Uh, they're mean-spirited, perhaps with their words. Um, maybe they lie or cheat. You know, 18% of Christian women report some form of abuse. 5% physical abuse. This is tragic. Uh, the church needs to be a refuge and a place of safety. Sadly, um, you suffer silently. And the church has not always uh, been there to serve. And, and I do repent of that. And we want to change that. We want to be a place that you can run to for help and security and to pray, God, would you bring deliverance into this life? And so where we perhaps have failed in the past, um, again, let us appeal going forward that we want to help. So th this word of submission is, is a serious word. It, it's not forced. It's, it's not a statement of value. It's, it's not about passivity of the woman, the acquiescing, just giving way because he's the man. It's not that. It's not absolute obedience, and it's not the whole of it. No, what submission is, is it's voluntarily offered in love. It's, 
It's, it's reflecting the divine order of God. It's, it's active in paying respect because you know that God will hold him accountable for everything. And it's, it's reverence to God, and it's just part. It's just part. So what about if you're not married? What do you do when you come across a text like this? Well, number one, you can take a word of warning for it, right? It does give a word of warning. I mean, before you become emotionally or physically involved with another man, is he walking out these leadership qualities? Now, the, the, most men don't have finer points of theology down, but do you see him exercising self-leadership? Is he regulating himself in terms of a job or in terms of you know, handling his money or handling leisure or other pleasures? Do you see him exercising self-leadership? You know, too many give way to evangelistic dating. And they think that by your influence, you're going to date someone that's not where he needs to be, but by your influence, he's going to get there. That's a dangerous path to be on. Because I've seen it 50 to 1, not. This is a word of warning. Uh, secondly, there's a word of encouragement here. You know, he does speak to this issue of Christ in the church. In other words, marriage is not ultimate. Christ is. And, and the man and the woman are being used. Paul's giving clear direction to marriage. But they're also being used as a paradigm to understand how we together relate to Christ, which is in obedience and submission. So we can all be asking, where are we not walking out submission to Christ? What parts of our lives are we just saying, no, I'm going to do it my way? Kind of like a, a like reminiscent of the garden. No, I want to do it my way. I know this is what God says, this is what I want to do. And so it brings us all to consider you know, a point of perhaps repentance. And remember, as I said last week, repentance is a gift of God to us. It's an opportunity to receive the grace that is ours in Christ. So it's not something, well, I'm a failure again. Hey, yeah, the ground under the cross is all level. We've all failed and we will fail. You know, even to the last breath of our life, we'll be clinging to the work that Christ has done for us. So avail yourself of that. Okay, but the question you may have may be this. So why? Why does Paul call women to, sub to submit? Why would he do this? Well, he gives us the answer. And again, I think he recognizes the value of women in providing a reason for his call to submit. Look with me at 23. At 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So Paul here is furnishing a reason to women. Wives, this is why you submit. God has appointed uh, the man to be the head. Now what does this mean? Well, that Greek word has the idea of authority or leadership associated with it. You see it in chapter 122 where he says that Christ is the head, the head of the church. He says it also in our passage. Um, so this idea of headship is something that's conferred upon the man. It, it's not an imperative. It's not a command. It's not something the man is to do. I will be the head today. No, it's a positional. It, it, it's, it's, he is. It's what we call an indicative. It's a state of being. In other words, what he's saying here is that when a man gets married, he becomes the head. He is the head. The two become one flesh. That's progressive. The headship is a state of being. So what it's saying is, men, you have this inescapable leadership that has been conferred upon you. You can't say, I'm not going to be the head. You can either be a bad head or a good head, but you're going to be a head. You have headship responsibilities now. 
So, so Paul's giving a reason that God has appointed. Now, you notice in the text, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul goes back to creation and says, because man was created first. He roots the headship of man in creation. He doesn't hear. He roots it not in creation, but redemption. Notice what he says. The, head, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So the man is being given this responsibility of headship, and not to be the decision maker of the family, not to be the kingpin, not to be the boss, not even to be in the place of Christ. He is simply given the authority to carry out the responsibility of loving his wife sacrificially, sanctifyingly, tenderly, that he is to sacrifice himself so that she might be made whole and she might be made pure. That as Christ is the Savior of the church, the man is the Savior, not from sin. Only Christ can save from sin. But we can be as a little Christ leading wives toward that beautiful union when she will meet the one who has been her husband, who has saved her from sin. This is the headship. Headship is critical to understand. You know, because when a woman is asked to submit, to offer her freedom, to follow the leadership, that is so much more easily done when the man is having an all-consuming love for her. It's so much easier for, for the woman uh, to respond uh, by offering herself when, when the man is offering his life. Uh, so the head begins this dynamic that is often not experienced, oftentimes is not experienced in our marriages. But it really ought to begin with the head to lay down your life, which engenders that response from the wife. So man, I, I'd ask you, do you see the inextricable relationship between the authority that you have and the responsibility that you bear? Uh, did you ask your wives last week about the nature of your sacrificial love, your sanctifying love? If you didn't, why not? And if you did, what'd they say? You know, one author said that every functional, every well-functioning head has ears. They have ears. You know, we're called to listen. Have we listened? I, I recognize the past two weeks are a heavy word from God's word. It, it's, it's, it's weighty, but I think it should be. It should be because of the nature of what we're talking about. We're talking about this union that is to display and to reflect the glory of God. What is your marriage reflecting? It is reflecting something, uh, but is it reflecting the beauty of sacrificial love and yieldedness one to the other? Uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and then I want to I write our minds uh, towards considering Christ. Let me just pray for us first. Father, I do thank you and praise you for your word and the grace that you have given to us in it. Lord, we confess that we feel undone in a passage like this. Each one uh, feels as if they have come up short. Thank you uh, that Christ intercedes, lives to intercede for his church. That he is appealing to us before you. And, and that's why we come to you in his name, that we would be cleansed, we confess to you, and we would ask that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness as it relates to our marriages, and that you would cleanse us and make us right. And so, Father, I pray that you would do this, uh, create conversations uh, that would be redemptive in their direction. 
and grant to us the grace to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, we don't have a communion table here, and um, uh, this is, of course, when we normally celebrate the Lord's table. We're practicing social distance uh, for the sake of our brothers and sisters, and so uh, we won't celebrate in the usual manner. And yet the elders thought it wise, they thought it biblical, and they thought it helpful uh, to our souls to reflect on, this, on the Lord's table. It's not a virtual communion. It is what many saints in the past who have suffered, who have been imprisoned, who have been persecuted, they haven't been able to celebrate communion. They haven't had bread and wine. They haven't had a church to go to and to celebrate it. And, uh, and yet Paul's words ring, remember me. That's why we do it. We remember. We don't want to fail at remembering. And so we want to take this time for just a few minutes and consider uh, what it means, what, what the table re- what the table reflects. You know, the elements themselves, as you know, are only pointers uh, to Christ, right? Charles Spurgeon says that the bread and the wine, they're spectacles, they're glasses through which we look to see the beauty of Christ. In fact, I, I, I just submit to you that I think Jesus chose very simple elements of life, very common elements of wine and bread, just so that we don't make much of the elements, but we make much of all that they symbolize. So the idea is we don't focus on whether we have the elements, although I do think bread and wine are significant, uh, but, but I think they point to something of far, far greater significance. But what does he call us to remember? Well, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what are we to remember? Me, Christ. We're to remember him, his body broken, his blood shed to establish a new covenant. This new covenant that he established, it, it didn't need to be renewed every year as the old covenant did, the blood and bulls and goats sacrificed every year. Not so with this covenant. It's an eternal covenant. It's not rooted in your ability to keep the laws or observing some moral code. It is rooted in his perfect work, which he did fully. We now enjoy it through faith. It's remembering he came, he took on flesh. He lived a life that pleased the Father. The Father said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then he humbled himself to death, death on a cross. He was raised for our justification. He is enthroned for our eternal security. These are the things he has done to save us from our sins. We want to think about these. You know, we live in these difficult times right now, and many of us tend to look at circumstances and take a temperature as to whether God loves us. We've been through Ecclesiastes. We know that the good often comes to the bad, and the bad often comes to the good. Circumstances are no measurement of God's love in themselves. Where we go to find out if God loves us is Christ. God demonstrates his great love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is where we go to find, does God love us? Yes, God loves us. We may have harder days ahead. He loves us. His love is profound. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We can talk about the judgment of God. We can talk about the fear of God, the works of God. But let's not miss the love of God. 
You may feel very unlovable. You may feel unloved. And yet there stands the crucified Son for us, raised now to glory to secure our eternal home with God forever. So let's take a moment and just, just ponder and consider. I'm going to give us some extra seconds. If I waited 15 seconds, you're going to think it's a long time. I'm going to wait more than that. Just consider the nature of Christ and all that he's done for us. Consider your own sin. You know, the reason we, we often love coming to the front is because it's a really a visual proclamation. I need him. I need the bread and all that it represents. I need the cup and all that it represents. It's a beautiful way of demonstrating it, rather than just sitting and having a past. Not criticizing that way, but there's a, there's a visual proclamation you're making, a declaration of need. Let's just consider that now, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.